Welcome one and all to the Track One Side One podcast. I'm your host Gaz Jones. And this week's guest is a singer from UK black metal bruisers, the Infernal Sea, Dean Lettuce. As you'll see, Dean brings the heavy metal thunder in the form of five great tracks to put on the virtual mixtape. We deep dive into the riffs of Maiden, Rainbow, Pantera, and many, many more. So please enjoy, and I'll speak to you as ever at the end. Cheers. I feel kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. You are listening to the Track One Side One podcast with me, your host, Gaz Jones. Each week, a guest picks their five favorite album opening tracks, and we dissect, discuss, and debate each one. So let's put on our classics and have a little chat then, shall we? And we're live! Joining me this week, staring at me through my laptop screen by the medium of Skype and that there interweb ting, is the lead vocalist of the greatest metal band this country has ever produced. That'll be Dean Lettuce. How are you, my friends? Yeah, I'm good, man. You? Before we crack on with your list, mate, how uh, how hard was it getting it down to just five songs? It, it was difficult to get it to five. Um, I mean, at first I was like, you know, this is going to be really hard. And then all of a sudden I was like, no, actually, this is really easy. And then I started churning them out. But then I got way beyond five and then it became like 15. And then I was like, shit, how am I going to get this down to five? Because I kind of wanted to... I wanted to try and be a bit diverse and, you know, pick a little bit from every genre that I like. But then I was like, nah, that just seems a bit too trying to be a bit hipster and a bit edgy and picking everything that appeals to people. Yeah. So in the end, I just decided to pick five um, tracks for songs that kind of helped formulate my teenage years and, and kind of get me into the music that I'm into now, really. Track number one, where are we going? So I'm going to start off with Michael Jackson Bad, simply because, um, as far as I remember, that was like the first artist that I ever got into, probably at the ripe old age of about six or seven or maybe younger. I remember getting this on vinyl, so that would have been, what, 87? So yeah, I remember getting Bad. I'm sure I found a picture somewhere of me, a seven-year-old me, holding a holding that record record as oh, well really? which is amazing, amazing. that's incredible and I, and I think i got it on cassette as well so god knows why i needed it on uh, record and cassette but i did but yeah he, he was the gateway into the music i think i had strange taste as a kid it was michael jackson it was betty boo uh, which oh. i absolutely loved yeah um and uh, mc hammer they were the they were the three that kind of got me into music you know <laughs> that's incredible I don't even know how I first heard that. I must have just heard it on the radio because we didn't really have Sky as a kid. So it was just, it would have just been radio. I, I'm assuming I may have seen a few little bits here and there on TV. He's one of them pop acts that all kids seem to get into somehow, isn't it? It's just something you hear, you know. But yeah, for me, that opening track, Bad, it just sets the tone for that record. It's just, it's a banger, isn't it? The whole album is just incredible. And, and I picked that up on record probably a couple of years ago. And it just, it's phenomenal, you know. The, the stuff he churned out is just timeless. And all the stuff that's gone down with him, you know, you can't take away that his music was incredible and the legacy he's left with that. So. So, yeah, so Bad for me was kind of my first musical experience. It's funny with Bad, it's like, obviously coming after Thriller, everyone was like, how the fuck is he going to top Thriller? And for me personally, I mean, Bad was my gateway into Michael Jackson as well. 
I was, I think I was about eight or nine when it came out. But like you were saying, I mean, like, yeah, likewise, I didn't have like Sky or anything when I was a kid, but that music was so kind of omnipresent. It was everywhere. And everyone had a Michael Jackson album. And I mean, this album was like the fucking hit factory. I think there was like nine singles released off it. It's insane. Dirty Diana, Smooth mm. Criminal, mm. The Way You Make Me Feel, Another Part of Me, yep. uh, Man in the Mirror, Speed yep. Demon. I know. Leave Me Alone. It's just... Uh, the Way You Make Me Feel. Yeah, yeah, Liberian Girl. Liberian Girl. I just can't stop loving you. It's mad. It's mad. It's virtually like virtually every song was a hit. And I, I think I think it's a better album than Thriller. Thriller is a great album, but to be honest, uh, Bad is the one that I always go back to. To mm. be honest, um, it, for me, it's his strongest one yeah. out of all of his albums. But yeah, I do kind of like Thriller, but um, Bad has I, always been the standout one. I don't know if maybe it depends on how old you were when you first heard it. I suppose. I suppose if if I don't know if we were maybe eight or nine in like eighty three thriller would be our favorite i think exactly you know I mean? and and i've always been a, an advocate of that it's like you kind of certain albums you enjoy because you're a certain age when you hear that you know so like totally. some people for example with metallica would absolutely love load because that's the yeah. first ever they how yeah. album they heard by them you know yeah. kind of yeah. makes sense whereas you know for me the first metallica i would have heard would have been and justice for all that was the first mm. one i was given so for me that's my favorite album but yeah it just depends when you're born what albums you hear and you latch on to them don't mm. you and that becomes you know your sort of nostalgic sort of mm. um albums that you love you know and even yeah it's over 20 odd years old and it still sounds incredible now yeah. and you've got that nostalgia with it because you're like yeah it's the first sort of music i got into as a kid you know so yeah, so so uh, Michael was the was the one, and and obviously Moonraker when Moonraker came out, that was just not Moonraker, that's James Bond. Yeah, was yeah. <laughs> um, yeah Moonwalker. So that's yeah. probably the same sort of titles. Yeah, no. um, you know, and that was just what, great watching that as a kid. Mm-hmm. What are the characteristics that that make a great opening track? It's just about having that impact that draws you straight into the album. You know, mm-hmm. just something that's from the get go, just something that's got a really good groove and just gets you hooked. Like I purposely, with the songs I chose, I didn't want songs with like long build-ups. Because okay, yeah, long build-ups are good because they kind of get you in the the mood for what's coming. But mm. I wanted I wanted to pick tracks that just come straight in off the bat. You know, that's you kind of know what you're going to expect, and mm. and that's that's one great thing about the opening track. Bad, it's just groove central straight away, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, just the way that starts is just oh, yeah, you know what you're going to get. You know, and then and then it just the tones just carried throughout the whole album, and I've kind of taken that on. With the bands that I do as well, especially with like the Infernal Sea, we always try to make sure that the first track has like it literally just punches you in the face. It's like mm. you know aggressive, sets the tone for the album, and then you know what's coming. And I think that's really important. I've been talking about this a bit recently, and um, I feel like it's kind of a lost art with music these days. Mm. Like people don't really think of an album as an album anymore, mm. which I feel is a shame. But it, I, I think it is slowly starting to come back you know, to see an album as an album and not just a collection of singles. But mm. whereas Bad actually is a collection of singles. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but it, but it has, it, it, but it's completely kind of, it's got a cohesive thing all the way through. And you yeah. know that there was, you know, a, so much attention went into that track order. Is it Geffen, the label? They basically, um, or whoever put it out, basically just looked at that and went, we're going to make a shit ton of money <laughs> yeah, off yeah. every single song being released as a single. You know, it was just like... Track two, mate, track two. Uh, I'm going to go with Rainbow, Long Live Rock and Roll. So for me, Rainbow, so growing up, my parents, my dad was an old rocker um, and he kind of loved Rainbow and he loved Deep Purple and Black Sabbath um, and kind of that old school rock stuff. Uh, My mum was a punk and so she loved, you know, The Damned, Sex Pistols, Susie Sue, Sham 69, all sort of like the 70s 
era of punk. Wow. There was a bit of a mixture as well. They liked, you know, Motown and, you know, a lot of ska stuff as well. So there's quite a lot going on, you know, when I was growing up. Uh, and then my uncle, so my dad's brother, he was the rock guy. Him and his wife at the time, they basically had the Maiden records, the Guns N' Roses, the Bon Jovis, you know. So like, I'd go around their house and just want to pinch all of their vinyl because you pick up, <laughs> You'd pick up like Iron Maiden and be like, oh, can I take this home? And they'd always tell me to piss off. But eventually, <laughs> eventually they'd let me borrow them. And, you know, that's that's where the love of metal came from. But but my dad liked Rainbow. And actually, the album that I love the most is um, Rising. Because Rising, still to this day, you know, released in, what, 76, around about there. Still to this day, this album gives me chills. It's, it's incredible. It, every time I listen to it, it feels like I'm listening to it for the first time again. It's just phenomenal from start to finish. It, uh, finish. The... The musicianship is incredible. Dio's voice is just insane. But even though, I think, it, is it Stargazer on Rising, the opening track, is a great track, but it's yeah. a slow builder. And that's why I decided to go with Long Live, Long Live Rock and Roll, um, because that one just comes straight in, you know, and it's great. And I, I'm a massive fan of Richie Blackmore. I love his guitar playing. And everything he did with Deep Purple, yeah. everything he did with Rainbow, he's got his own unique style and sound. As soon as you hear it, you know Blackmore's playing. And I, I just feel like, yeah, they just captured something with this, the whole yeah. whimsical fantasy style rock. It just It's just magic. It's just beautiful sounding. Yeah, and Long Live Rock and Roll for me is just an incredible opening track. That cosy pal sort of drum roll at the start, and it, it's just, just straight in. It's up there, you know, if you're going to do like top five Blackmore riffs, because he was a riff man. He could he shit. He could shit riffs out, you know, yep. before he'd even woken up in the morning. Be it, you know, I don't know, Black Knight, be it Burn, be it Stormbringer, be it Long Live Rock and Roll, be it Stargazer. I mean, Christ, yep. the, the list is fucking endless. I remember you saying to me a few years ago, you were thinking about going to see the Rainbow Reu- the reunion gigs. Uh, did you go? I did, yeah. So I actually went to two of them. So um, I saw him the first time, and it it was good. It, the, the second time, I wasn't that impressed. Um, I felt he's had his time, unfortunately, and he's he's obviously had um, problems with his hand, hasn't he? He's been so long out of playing the rock stuff that he's he just hasn't got the speed anymore. And it was good to see, and it was good to hear, and the guy that they had singing the songs was very very close to Dio it didn't feel right in a way like I'm glad I got to see the songs and I'm glad I got to see Richie Blackmore but I felt like it was a reunion that was 20 years too late unfortunately Uh but you know I'm still honored that I got to see it but um yeah it it was a little bit of a a disappointment Mm. Um, everything was played so much slower than what's on the record because Richie just couldn't play anymore yeah yeah, it, it was worth seeing but wasn't as incredible but then you get that with a lot of these old bands that come back they've passed their glory but it's nice that they're doing it because it means that the generations that didn't get to see it get to see it is the importance of the opening track of an album as we first knew it when we were starting to obsess over music when we were younger do you think that's something that's been lost in a digital age i know you kind of you kind of touched on this kind of earlier yeah Um, i think so And and i don't know if that's just us being old bastards or maybe it's just the way we consumed music because you know we we were born before the internet yeah we kind of just had to consume music as an album you know or you mm. you potentially hear a single on a on the radio or you know somebody doing a mixtape and you'd only hear one track of that but yeah. most of the time a lot of them on the mixtapes were usually the openers anyway because it's probably easier to record wasn't it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so true but yeah I, I think it's really important and again i think it is the way we consume consumed music back then is we would just we would get the album and then you'd listen to the whole album as a as a whole because mm. you couldn't just 
you know, go on Google and just find a track on YouTube or Spotify or whatnot and, and just listen to that repeatedly. So I, I do feel it is lost. Obviously, we have the benefits of the exposure of music now and how much we can actually access. But I find it myself, you know, I, I come across a band and I can turn it off in 40 seconds because I'm just like, yeah. Whereas if I've just brought a record, you know, back in the day and I've just paid 20 quid for that, I'm going to fucking listen to that album. And if I hate it, I'm going to get my 20 quid's worth by listening to it. So I love it. You know what I mean? It's something I've touched on in previous podcasts, but the whole thing of like music being an actual kind of tangible investment, taking a punt on that out on an album, a non-chart album, maybe an import album that would cost you 22, 23 quid in Tower yeah. Records on Piccadilly Circus. Yeah. You know, when all you've heard is, I don't know, the last couple of minutes uh, on, you know, on bloody Tommy Vance's rock show or something, you know, and you're like, I need to hear that. That sounds fucking incredible. And you, and you take a punt on this stuff. And like you say, you, you, you get it home, you put it on, you play it, and you're like, no, I ain't so sure about this. But you're, you're like, hang on a minute, I've just spunked all my money on that, you know, three weeks worth of paper rounds or something. Yeah, and, I'm so damn well, and I'm damn well going to like this. As awesome as the internet and streaming services can be for, you know, exposing people to new bands or underground bands, Infernal C being a great example, do you know what I mean? There is that thing that it's that kind of disposable thing and it's just, it's there on your phone and you get, like you were saying, you get that itchy trigger finger to go, oh, I'm going to skip this. Yeah, it's a Next. shame, isn't it? And I, and I think because, you know, it's been in bands, we kind of get it, you know, because we've, we've grown up with music, we, we heavily invest in music and have done for a lot of years and then you play in bands and you kind of appreciate it so you you understand it a bit more but yeah for the casual listeners or or even the new generation of um you know younger fans like it is all very much throwaway you, you can see it at gigs you don't necessarily see so many young people coming to gigs you know anymore because that's not how they consume music whereas with us because you know we didn't have the internet and and so forth we would just go to shows and watch the four bands that were playing because you know your chance to see a new band wasn't it you know exactly you consume it as much as possible but Mm -hmm. yeah it it has changed and like you say for the for the good and for the bad you know but um yeah maybe we're just stuck in our old ways and it's the best way i think (laughs) (laughs) uh track number three we uh, so track number three, I'm going to go with Judas Priest, Painkiller, simply because it's fucking Painkiller. Judas Priest, like their catalogue leading up to Painkiller is very good. You know, you've got some great albums before that, but Painkiller hit and it you just went, fuck, where the hell did this come from? Like Judas Priest ramped up to 11 on Painkiller mm. and that opener, them drums, that drum oh roll in, he's just yeah. incredible. And his screech throughout is just amazing, you know. Yeah. And that whole album just, from start to finish, just blows me away. And it, and again, it's another album that I can still listen to now mm. and just be like, it's fucking amazing. Like, it's, it's the, for me personally, I think Painkiller is my favourite album by them because it's just so 90s and so metal. Well, it, practically, it practically invented power metal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it kind yeah. of just set the tone for the 90s, didn't it? And. Mm-hmm. You know, before that, they were heavy, but they weren't this heavy. And no. yeah, for them to just completely change and just go, you know, balls to the wall, here's this. It was just mm-hmm. like, wow. And yeah, I, personally, I don't think as an opening song, it's so strong. It's it's a hard one to beat, to be honest. Mm. I think I think Priest always made a, a really good kind of habit of doing great opening songs. Yeah. You go through most of, you know, be that, you know, Electric Eye, yeah. Rapid Fire, Hand on Heart, this isn't, the priest that I love, the priest that I love is is 
you know, Scream for Vengeance era. That, for me, you know, uh, up to Ram It Down and stuff like that. But like you were saying, it was it was Priest ramped up to 11. A lot of that was to do with, with getting Scott Travis on drums. I've never heard a drum intro like it. And, <laughs> and seeing, I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm sure you've seen Priest. I've seen Priest. Uh, and when, when they kick in to those drums, it's... To seeing it live is fucking incredible. It is. It's fucking incredible. Just everything about Priest is incredible live mm. as well. You know, just mm. the fact that you know Al Halford is what sixty odd now, and his voice yeah. is still phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Like, that guy can sing. Yeah, just when you hear those shrieks, it's just like wow, blow, blows you away. Yeah, like you say, them drums, and then there's there's endless solos galore in there. Yeah. It's just. It's... The thing I always liked about Priest albums when you talk about the solos there, because I'm, I'm sure you like myself you would kind of read cover to cover all the liner notes all the sleeve notes and the thing i loved about priest and i don't think any other metal band from that time did it they would divide who did what part of the solo on each song yeah. for the proper fucking nerdy anoraks hello yeah like you and me <laughs> and we Is would that... devour that shit i love that kind of stuff and then obviously the thrash bands just kind of adapted that uh, mm. adopted that didn't they and the, yep. you know, they'd start saying you know in slayer mm. uh, who was doing the kerry one and then the hanneman ones and mm. yeah, you could always tell the kerry ones because they were always shit but the, was uh... shit. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah like then you knew who was doing the solos it was it was great yeah, and, and just that artwork on Painkiller as well, you know, just a, a, a bike, this weird mechanical beast riding a bike, you know, just, yeah. that was blatantly Halford. Do you still enjoy listening to an album from, from start to finish? I do, um, and obviously because collect vinyl, you kind of have to, don't you, but um, it's the whole ritual of, you know, putting that record on, listening to it for 20 minutes, turning it over, listening to the rest of the album. I am getting a bit annoyed with everyone doing um, double LPs because it means you only get a couple of tracks and you have to turn the poxy thing over. It's like going in a seven inch, and I hate seven inches. (laughs) But yeah, like I I do purposely sit down and listen to full albums. Like if, you know, if um, I I normally listen to stuff on YouTube or Spotify before I buy an album as well, but I'll listen to the whole thing. I won't just Mm. listen to like a single and you know jump on it that way but mm. yeah I, I do have the ritual of listening to the, the full album from start to finish because i think that's the best way that you immerse yourself into the music you know that's that's how the band intended it to be heard track four mate uh track four let's go uh pantera mouth for war i love pantera <laughs> <laughs> no it's, shit. Just, it's just dumb 90s metal and it's fantastic mm-hmm. but i remember being given vulgar display of power uh, i think a friend of mine gave me it on cd and was just like you need to listen to this and it just blew me away it's just incredible i absolutely love that mouth for war is like one of my favorite tracks and mm-hmm. yeah it's just what can you say about pantera that hasn't been said you know it's just they're just great. Just the guitar playing on that's insane. You know, Vinny's mm-hmm. drums are great. Uh, Phil just sounds angry as fuck. And, and that was the era when he looked menacing as well. You know, it's just... Just cut his hair off at this point as well. He did, yeah. Completely like, statement-headed. Looks yeah. like he's going to beat the shit out of you. Um, <laughs> his fist was probably the one punching the guy on the front cover, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it obviously just gone from Cowboys from Hell to this. It was just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, a really bold statement and completely changed everything for them. I mean, Cowboys for Hell was massive anyway, wasn't it? But yeah. this, I felt this was a game changer. It certainly, it certainly was for kind of 90s heavy music. Well, th- this and the first Machine Head album, really, I suppose. They both came out the same year, I believe, like yeah, 90, 93, 94. 94, wasn't it? Yeah. The, the thing is with Pantera is they obviously released that and then, you know, they did Far Beyond Driven and they did mm-hmm. um, Grey Summon Tranquil. Mm-hmm. And even... 
even now when you re-listen to Reinventing the Steel, it's a it's a really good album. I didn't it like is. it at the time, but it is a good album. Yeah. Whereas personally for Machine Head, they only kind of did one good album and then they kind of lost it. Uh, More Things Change, yeah, had some great tracks and mm. stuff, but for me, I felt they never captured that you know, of what they achieved on Burn My Eyes. Oh, no, completely. It was, yeah, it was lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Whereas Pantera just ramped it up even more every album that came <laughs> out. And, and Phil just got insanely heavier and heavier vocally. Mm-hmm. Like, he's vocal. Yeah, so, yeah right. Southern Tranquil especially. It's like, Jesus, like gargling with barbed wire. Yeah, they were his heroin days probably, weren't they? So he was just mm-hmm. off his tits. But, yeah. yeah, that man is angry. I remember seeing, again, it was on... Um, Headbangers Ball, I remember seeing the Mouth of War single and it was just mm. so good, you know, where mm. it looks like they're on a makeshift uh, stage at the end with all the netting in the air and Phil's just headbanging and it's yeah. just sick. And, and that for me just made me go, I want to do this. I wanted to kind of sing like Phil at the time. No one can really sing, sound like Phil anyways. Got no. deep New Orleans drawl, and he? Yeah, that kind of made me want to start doing music and emulating that sort of style, really. So, mm. yeah, that kind of changed my outlook and, and, and maybe start exploring the heavier stuff because it's a weird one. I look back on the nineties and because I was teens in the nineties and when I think of the nineties, I think a lot of it was really shit, but it's not until you actually come out of the other side and you actually go, actually what we had in the nineties was fucking awesome, it's but I'm fucking special. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just remembering all the crap, like all the brick pop stuff that we had, <laughs> all the horrible mainstream music that was being rammed down our throats. And then you forget about what stuff was out metal wise. Cause a lot of it was underground. But yeah, when you start looking back and exploring what came out in the night, it's, it's it's rich. There's so much great stuff. You know, it's it's insane. And a lot of bands I overlooked, and it's not until now that they're they've either split up or members have died. You know, that I think shit, I should have paid more attention. Mm. For me, that's just a phenomenal opener. Again, it 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 sets the tone for the whole album. Punches mm. you in the face. You kind of know what you're going to expect. It's just bold. It's brash. It's harsh. Mm. And it mm. just says. You know, listen with Pantera. I never got to see Pantera live. I saw, um, I saw Damage Plan the one time they came over to the UK. They, it was the first or the second download. The second download. Whilst Damage Plan, it was, it wasn't the album wasn't particularly great. I, I went because I was just like, look, they're going to play some Pantera, man. It was like baking hot summer's afternoon, and the last song they played was Walk. Yeah. And the crowd just went, like, as you can imagine, just batshit. Well, and it was, it was so cool just seeing him once being the fucking legendary, legendary guitarist that, that he was, man. See, I was fortunate. I, I did see Damage Plan. I wasn't really into them. I did see them at Download. Um, mm. I saw um, Phil do the um, the vulgar display of Pantera with the Illegals at the Underworld oh, um, wow. a while ago, which was great. And he was on fine form, you know. He was really, like, teasing the crowd and just, yeah, it was cool to see because, obviously, he said some stupid shit and he's done some mm. stupid shit in his years. You know, we won't say no more about, but yeah, he kind of seemed to be on form again, you know, but I, I was fortunate enough that I saw Pantera in 98. Oh, Ozfest. Yeah. Which was incredible. Um, I'm most of the set. I remember I just get my head kicked in, in the pit because <laughs> every time like, I was a scrawny little fucker. And every time like, you know, they went into fucking hostile. My friend just pushed me in the pit and uh, all the Pantera skin edge just pummeled me. Um, you know, like getting a Doc Martin boot stamped in my face, but you'd get up and be like, yeah, fucking yeah. <laughs> You know, and then you'd, you'd kind of recover and then get frightened back in again for walk, and you'd be like, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, the, fifth, the fourth or fifth band of the day, I'm not going to survive. Yeah. 
but, um, they were incredible. I'm so glad I, I got to see mm. them because mm. annoyingly, and I regret this, they, they played in 2000 with Satyricon um, on that yeah. tour in London, which was their, uh, their last UK one, wasn't it? Because mm-hmm. they were supposed to do Tower of the Planet, but obviously 9-11, so they didn't. Yeah. So I I didn't go to that because my old band was playing some show in fucking Wisbeach of all places. And um, yeah, hindsight, I just think, fuck, like... The last yeah, but at the time you're like, I'm not, I can't let the band down, man. Exactly. We're, play, we're playing the beach. You yeah, know, like, there's probably going to be at least twelve people there. I think it was at the, <laughs> at the angles um, in Wisbeach. Oh, really? And I'm sure it would have been with an old band called Cheesecake Warriors. Great name. But um, yeah, I, I turned that down to play this shitty show to like ten people, which is probably a really fun show. But yeah, I would have preferred to have seen Pantera. It was the one where they knocked the PA stack over as well um oh kind of a lot of shit for it but mm, yeah mm. who know who knew that we wouldn't see them because of 9-11 and then splitting up and then some prick killing dime bag you know so yeah man Why not? yeah sad times it's all about taking those chances and you know if you ever do have an opportunity to go and see a band fucking go and see that band man because you don't know no nope. and i happen, you know and i i, I take that mantra now seriously you know it's like yeah. if a band plays it's like well this actually could be the last time you ever see them so just get yeah, out exactly before we go on to your last track, man, I just want to quickly say that obviously we can't play any of the tunes uh, on the podcast due to the uh, my good friends, the copyright police, who will shut me down. Yeah. Uh, but what we do, um, I do an accompanying YouTube and Spotify playlist that will go out live uh, with each episode. So people can listen to uh, your song choices like that and uh, flash the horns and bring the metals, man, because uh, yeah. it's been fucking great talking about some heavy metal. Not enough people have chosen heavy metal. Ugh. Heavy metal it is. It's the only way, frankly. You know, people have tried to be too cool and too niche. And I knew you wouldn't let me down, Dean. Right, without further ado, track number five. Bring it home, so I've left the best till last because it is Iron Maiden, of course. I cannot do a list without mentioning Iron Maiden on anything, really. Iron Maiden are the band that got me into music, really. You know, like once I once I saw Number of the Beast and Peace of Mind on my, around my uncle's final collection uh, just instantly knew straight away that's that's what i you know i wanted to listen to uh, a number of the beasts just blew me away it's just an incredible album and i think one of the first cds i picked up was actually fear of the dark strangely enough and yeah i've just i've loved that band since i was probably like 11 i've seen them like 20 times and i've, <laughs> I've been flown by bruce on bruce air and you know shit like that so like uh, pure fanboy when it comes to maiden so for the opening track i decided everybody picks aces high which is an incredible track, but I didn't want Aces High. Um, Tower Gunner was another one that I thought, this this could be cool. But then I was like, nah, you know what? Be Quick or Be Dead. Like, Be Quick or Be Dead is a tune. And it's kind of one of them songs that gets forgotten, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of era does, you know. Um, yeah. No Prayer for the Dying and, and Fear of the Dark. You know, there's a couple of, well, they play Fear of the Dark live, but that's, they don't really play much else from them albums. And, no. and it's a shame. And, um it was kind of the era where Bruce kind of, it felt like he just didn't give a fuck anymore. You know, you can hear it on a uh, Holy Smoke, really. It's a very silly <laughs> song, which is a great song. And oh, it's hook- a fucking great song. Yeah. And, and hooks in, in me, hooks in you is just, uh, yeah, I, I do like it, but it is a bit crap. I, I really like that. So I, I generally think No Prayer for the Dying is their most underrated album. It is a good album. It, it, that and Fear of the Dark are them albums that you kind of, some days you can listen to it and you think, mm, 
they're not that great. And then other days you can revisit them and go, actually, they're really good. There's some yeah, good songs good. on it. Um, it just depends on the mood you're in. But yeah. Be Quick or Be Dead, that opening air raid siren shriek from Bruce mm-hmm. is yeah. just incredible. Um, yeah, it, just for me, it's just great. It's, it's it's a really simple song as well, but it's a fast mm-hmm. number. You know, it, it just kind of... The thing I found with all of these songs is it's their statements, their opening statements. You know, it's as if to say, this is our new album here it is smack you know straight in and you're just like yeah and that you know you can just imagine sitting there with your cans on back in the day listening to that and just being like oh, fuck yeah you know as soon as you hear that scream you're just like horns up <laughs> this was um the first out first like brand new maiden album that i bought after getting into maiden i bought the be quick or be dead like 12 inch yeah single after seeing like i think 30 seconds of it on top of the pops yeah, 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 yeah. Long gone now. All, all that kind of. Yeah, I, I weep. Whilst I think there are some good moments on Fear of the Dark, I think it's kind of. It was the first time that Maiden kind of, like a lot of bands, kind of pandered to the CD age. It's too fucking long. That yeah, for me. it is. There's some interesting stuff on there, uh, like Wasting Love and stuff like. I really like Weekend Warrior. I think that's a really good song. Yes. Yeah, but Be Quick or Be Dead, man. Maiden at their hardest and nastiest. Yeah. Possibly the heaviest. I think so. I think it's one of their heaviest tracks. It's, I, I'm not sure who actually wrote it, but obviously Bruce was off. I, was, uh, I think it was Dickinson and, and, and Yannick Gares, I think. Which would make sense because he yeah. was at that time, he was saying that Maiden wasn't really heavy enough for him anymore, yeah. wasn't he? And he went off to do his solo stuff, which actually yeah. then materialised into what Maiden was sounding like back then, which is, you know, quite yeah. like Accident of Birth and Chemical yeah. Wedding and stuff. But obviously he went off and and um, took Adrian, didn't he, and um, yeah. their stuff. Yeah. But yeah, you, you can tell if you look at Bruce's solo stuff and then listen to that, it's it's very reminiscent of what he was going on to do. And like you say, with them two albums, you could kind of tell that there was tension between them. You know, that things were things were starting to to go. And obviously we saw that after, you know, Fear of the Dark. That was pretty much it, wasn't it? After '92 and then '93, I think he was out, wasn't he? The amount of bad blood that was still there like five, six years after, after Bruce has left and me, like all Maiden fans at the time, as much goodwill as you had towards blaze, you wanted, everyone wanted Bruce to come back. Yeah. Everyone wanted Bruce to come back. You know, literally I think maybe four months later. Yeah. It wasn't, it was in in Kerrang. It was like, no Dickinson's back. We're doing a great city store. We're doing a new album. You know, he's back to save metal and all this. Okay. Wow. I remember that news because when I started listening to it, it must have been, yeah, when I was 11. So that would have been to uh, 91 and then all them years without him. And, you know, I was, I was too young to go to Donnett in 92, um, which would I would have loved to have gone. My friend went uh, bastard, but yeah. So like, I would have loved that. But um, yeah, I remember the news when they just said Bruce is back. Like, I must have just picked up Krang or something, you know, in a, in a shop and it said Bruce is back. And I was literally just like, I was so happy yeah and then obviously they announced the tour and that was metal 2000 when they did them yeah. shows with with slayer and entombed i don't if i remember it rightly what didn't everyone just chant maiden during slayer and it was like this is fucking slayer like everyone's only here to see bruce and no one gave a shit about slayer and entombed nope. but nope. Yeah, no it's such a great show and, and that was obviously when we got a lot of the hits as well didn't we but mm. i'm glad they did bury the hatchet and, and I'm glad that Bruce went off to do his own stuff because I, I highly rate his solo stuff. It's incredible. 
Yeah, yeah oh, totally. I don't think he's done a bad album solo-wise. And... No, no, no. I mean, I know this is something we've spoken about before, you know, about his solo career and stuff. I'm still a massive, I'm a staunch Skunk Works defendant. You know, it was the right album at the wrong time. You know, releasing an album like that in 1996 when all people gave a fuck about was Oasis and Blur. Yep. Last thing people wanted to hear was like a Bruce Dickinson solo album. I did, you know. But uh... yeah, yeah, me, no, me too. Me, Ditto, Ditto, and my two friends at college that like metal. Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, did you see him solo? I did. Yeah, I saw him at the Cambridge Junction in about '98. I hate you. They, uh... well, and, and this is when he had Adrian Smith on uh, guitar as well. I'll give you Rush if you can give me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. The... <laughs> I was torturing myself about a month ago and um, I was like, why didn't I ever go to see Bruce Dickinson solo stuff? There would have been reasons why I was torturing yeah. myself and I was Googling. I was like, maybe he just didn't play. Look at the tour days. Like, I was oh, like, fuck tour days. he played yeah. and all I was the like, time. He's played like every year and he played like Cambridge and Nottingham. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. fuck. <laughs> yeah. It, it was, it was incredible. It was mainly stuff off um, chemical wedding and accident at birth. I think he did. He did tattoo millionaire. But he did loads. He did fucking loads of Maiden. But loads of like, he did stuff like The Prisoner. Oh, nice. And um, Power Slave. You know, not he didn't do Run to the Hills and Number of the Beast, basically. Yeah. You know? And it was fucking great. And you could tell that he was enjoying singing these songs. That's good. Because to be honest, I think he knew he wasn't going to be singing these songs in small venues for much longer. No. He probably knew that he was going to go back to him anyway, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, the deal had probably already been done by then. Yeah, you know? exactly. But yeah... Be Quick and Be Dead, classic track, great opener. Yeah, it's it's one that's kind of forgotten. And not many people talk about it, which is a real shame because it, it is a great track. Um, but again, it's probably just because it's kind of in that era that people don't revere so much, uh, you know, with Maiden. Everyone goes for, you know, Power Slave and Seventh Son sort of eras, the pinnacle. But, you know, for me, every album has its place. Um, yeah, every album has its moments. Yeah, they're all, they're all very strong. That's a cracking way to finish. Dean, thank you so much, my friends. No worries. Thank you very much for having me on here. And there you go. Nice one, Dean, for the hangs, the tunes. And I hope you all enjoyed it out there. And who knows, maybe you discover your new musical obsession. So please take care out there, yeah? Please. We'll catch you all on the flip side. Adios. I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones. Track ones. You've been listening to the Track One Side One podcast with me, Gaz Jones. Give us a follow on all the social medias at Track One Side One Podcast to keep fully up to date with all future episodes and guests. Where there will also be links to Spotify playlists that will accompany each show. So please check them out. And I'll see you soon.